This episode is sponsored by More Than A Number, the brand new podcast from ICAEW. Search More Than A Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's new weekly podcast where we discuss some of our favourite features from the issue each week. I'm Nara Prendergast. America goes to the polls next year, but can any of the Democratic candidates take Trump on? And with our own election coming up, we look at what happens if you can no longer vote for the party you've always supported. And finally, we take a look at George Eliot's 200th anniversary and find out a bit more about her unconventional life. First up, can anyone unseat Trump from the Oval Office? It's not that he's such a brilliant president, says Freddie Gray, but that the 17 candidates vying for the Democratic nomination are all united by what Freddie calls a mesmerising mediocrity. So, is Freddie right? He joins me now, together with Karine Jean-Pierre, former deputy campaign manager for Obama and national spokeswoman for campaign group MoveOn.org. Freddie, Trump seems pretty beatable, so, so what's the problem? Well, it is odd. I mean, uh, this has been a very large field of Democratic presidential candidates. And always with large fields, you hear from people within the party that this is exciting. It shows how much kind of energy and dynamism there is in the party and that there's a kind of wealth of talent. But actually, as this field has gone on, you're seeing that there isn't really a wealth of talent. There's a sort of there's some quite eccentric and interesting candidates in the race, but they're not doing very well at all. And the people bubbling up to the top, notably Liz Warren, is, is a much worse candidate than people think. And I think this has been exposed in the last week, and I think it will be exposed more as the race goes on. Karine, you're a veteran of presidential campaigns. I mean, do you agree that the Democratic candidates don't really have what it takes? No, I disagree 110%. I've worked on four presidential campaigns. I, you know, am a political consultant and I work for um, an organization that does grassroots work and we're on the ground and we're talking to our base pretty regularly. And I, I think that and many of our members and many of the people who are in the base do believe it is a very talented, a very diverse field. And it does matter to people, especially in a democratic base, when the democratic base is itself diverse. I think what is happening is that the people at the top, in particular Bernie Sanders and Biden, have high name ID. And that's who people know. You know, when it comes to Biden, he was the VP of the of the first African-American president of the United States for eight years. People remember that. People really see him as, as someone who is comforting, someone who, you know, who who can heal the country in many ways of where we are today. And Bernie, Bernie Rand has kind of been running for the last four years. So there's a name ID. And so you have a lot of the rest of the field who is having a harder time breaking through. But it's incredibly talented. We're talking about senators. We're talking about former governors. We're talking about, you know, people who are who have who have done some incredibly um, um, smart and 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 ch- changing changing policies in their career? Uh, well, I think Bernie Sanders is is an incredibly talented candidate, uh, and he's already proven that he is. I, I mean, I I know Joe Biden has a very distinguished career. I'm not sure how talented he's proven himself as a campaigner yet. I think that you're right to talk about the base, but what what I try and say in my piece is a point that has been made by lots of people that the Democrats are speaking very much to their base, to, if you want, the, the sort of coastal 
left and this is not playing very well with middle America. And a lot of Democrats know this. I mean, Nancy Pelosi said this last week. If you're talking to people of San Francisco, often we're missing the people in Michigan. America is such a politically diverse country and it's not really it's not really listening to a lot of the messages that the Democrats are putting out. Would you agree with that? No, I disagree. So first and foremost, I think in order to win in 2020, you have to do both. You have to talk about policies. You've got to talk about how you're moving the country forward. You have to talk, be bold and you have to be, be brave and say, hey, this is what we're going to do because what Donald Trump has done in this country for the last three years have been very detrimental. When you think about tax cuts, that's hurting 99% of the people who are here. It's only helping the 1%. When you think about health care, Donald Trump is currently literally in the courts trying to take health care away, trying to gut ACA. So I think it's smart for Democrats right now to talk about you know, health care and how they're trying to provide more and how to make it more affordable. But also, this is a very, very important thing. The number one issue, and to your point, that Democratic base wants to see is how to beat Donald Trump. So they have to make that very, very clear. How are we going to beat Donald Trump and what that looks like. There's polling. When you talk about Bernie Sanders and you talk about kind of the progressive elements of policy that he puts forward, when you think about college affordability, when you think about health care, when you think about these things that are seen to be more left, there's been polling that have shown that not only do majority of Democrats agree with making college more affordable, with making health care, Medicare for all, having that, but also independents like it and Republicans like it. I think what it is, what's happening is we need to have a good, solid message that resonates with people. And I think that is probably the problem that you see now. But here's the thing, Democrats and the base are very different than Republicans. Democrats want to be inspired. Barack Obama ran on universal health care. You know, which was very controversial at the time. And he was able to create a movement to bring in young people, to bring in people who've never voted before, to, to really bring out African Americans in a historical way, bring out Latinos in a, in a historical way. And that's what Democrats need to do. And if they shy away, if they shy away from important issues, they will lose. We have to figure out how to put a movement together. I, I completely hear what you're saying, although I would say that I think all voters want to feel inspired, not just Democratic ones. But I, I no, think... no, no, that's not true. Republicans like a leader. They like leaders. They like to be led. But, all right, they like Where to be inspired Democrats, by a leader. We've seen, we've seen this with Clinton. We've seen this with Carter. We've seen it especially with Obama. When it comes to Democratic voters, it is a very different thinking. They want to be inspired. They want a movement. But yeah, but I mean, you, you could say Trumpism is a movement. Yeah, Trump. Trump was a very different type of movement, though. That was, and if you go back to 2016, 2016 was a very different type of election. It was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. There wasn't a high number. There was like historical numbers that came out. That's what I'm talking about. If, you, if Democrats want historical numbers, want big numbers, if they want a movement, they have to inspire. Um, Trump was different. It was different. You had misinformation campaign. You had Russia. You had, you had so many things happening all at once that led him to win. But it seems to me that the movement is, is hatred of Trump, that the movement isn't about 
anything else at the moment. And and it seems to me that's the I'm one. Not, that's, I'm, that, I'm, that's, not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I said that. I said right yeah. now people want to get rid of Trump. That is a real thing. That's sure. why we've had a resistance movement for the last three years. Sure, but, the but people want to be inspired, as you said. And, by progressive ideas. But people want to be inspired by ideas as well, not just hating the president. I, I think it's two. I don't, I think, I don't, I've said this, I just said this moments ago, I think you have to have both. And I'm not going to call it hate, hatred for, you can call it if you want, hatred for Donald Trump. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that people a want strong to desire get, to get rid, rid of, of Donald Let me finish. People want to get rid of Donald Trump. They are tired of the, of the awful rhetoric. They are tired of the divisiveness that he is putting forward. And they're worried and scared for their future and the future of their children. So they want to get Get rid of him. But what I'm saying is, historically, when a Democrat president makes it into the White House, right, it has been also a movement. It has also included inspiration. I'm saying you need both. Fred, you say in your piece also that a lot of the candidates are moving to the left and incorporating a fair amount of identity politics in the debate. I mean, is that going to play well for the Democrats, do you think? Well, it's very odd. I mean, I think, you know, it seemed to me, and again, I'm just a hack, I'm, I've never worked on a political campaign, but it seemed to me that the Democrats realised that identity politics did not play well for them in 2016 and, and that they needed something better. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, there was Obama did that speech about cancel culture and how you know young people shouldn't get involved in it. And a lot of Democrats and a lot of independents react to that message. They don't like this sort of insane identity politics that seems to be taking over large sections of the left. It doesn't win elections. And yet, you, what you have is you have a large number of Democratic candidates who aren't really comfortable doing any type of politics which isn't about transgender issues or about, you know, environmentalism, or, or, or these sort of keystone, touchstone leftist topics that don't really play out so well across the country. This identity politics stuff is so, it's like one of the things that it comes from, it's like right-wing talking points. If you look at the numbers, what you see very, very clearly, even with Hillary Clinton, certainly with Barack Obama, is that if Democrats want to win the presidency, they have to get African Americans out. They have to get young voters out. They have to get Latinos out. They have to create a coalition. And that is key, that is important. The backbone of the Democratic Party are African American women, point blank, period. And so, so I don't know this whole identity politics. It's basically making sure that you have a coalition. That is incredibly important. That's how we win. But the trouble is that coalitions, particularly democratic coalitions, don't seem to be working with identity politics at the moment because what you have is, for instance, Pete Buttigieg, who everyone celebrates because he's gay and they think it's inspiring because he's a gay candidate, but then he doesn't play at all well with African-American voters. So, so there are these sort of contradictions within uh, yeah, the Democratic Coalition. The reason why he's not playing well with African-American voters is because they don't know him. We're living in a different time. African-American voters right now, we see it in polling. They want to win. They are concerned about Donald Trump. They know Biden. They know Biden very well. He was the, the, the he was Obama's number two. 
that's it's that's what it's all about. I'm not playing this game about because he's gay. That's why African Americans are not supporting Pete Buttigieg. There's no evidence of that. The evidence actually is more of that. They see him as 37 years old. He doesn't have any experience, and they just don't know him. And they want to go with the candidate that they are comfortable with because he's been around for a long time, and they trust him. Why do you think Kamala Harris's campaign hasn't worked? Why do I think Kamala Harris's campaign hasn't worked? I think that uh, a lot of it is the media, the type of media um, that she's receiving. I think, just like I said earlier, it's hard to break through when you're not well known yet. And also, you got to be able to, to raise money. And so that's incredibly difficult when you're a new candidate. I don't think it's as easy as, I think she's a great candidate. I think we have a lot of great candidates. There's been head-to-heads that's shown that she could beat Donald Trump. What, what's uh, the negative media election. she's been I think that we're living in a different time. People want to go with the person that they're familiar with, the person that they're comfortable with, because they want to beat Donald Trump. He is a scary, scary notion to many, many people. Thank you, Freddie and Kareen. And Kareen's new book, Moving Forward, is out now. Hello, I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls, and you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider. And why not leave us a review if you like it? Next, what do you do when the political party that you've voted for all your life and identified with suddenly doesn't want you anymore? In this week's issue, we hear from two political orphans, Tanya Gold, a left-wing British Jew who cannot bring herself to vote for Corbyn, and Matthew Paris, a former Tory MP who has now left the Conservative Party. They both join me now. Matthew, in your column this week, you talk about how you've never left an organisation on a matter of principle. So can you tell us about your decision to leave the Tory party and why exactly you've done so? Well, I've been a member since I joined a strange ginger group called Pressure for Economic and Social Toryism at Cambridge University in 1969. So that is 15 years. And my whole life has been bound up with the Conservative Party, with being a local branch member, being a branch uh, chairman, uh, working for Margaret Thatcher as her letter writer, then going into Parliament as a Tory MP for seven years and, and remaining in the, the in a modest sense of the word, a conspicuously conservative columnist and broadcaster. I've never pretended that I've left the party or that I don't support the party. And in turn, the fact that I was a declared conservative has probably helped me in my career as a, as a journalist and as a broadcaster. So a, a life completely intertwined with the Conservative Party, which of course from time to time one loves and from time to time one hates, and it can be a ghastly old thing, and, and, and it can be really quite movingly something to to support but but almost never have I thought of leaving the party when it's gone wrong as it did under Ian Duncan Smith for instance I have thought never mind the sun will come out again uh, people will see that he's taking us in the wrong direction and, and they did and I've been trying to say that uh, about Boris Johnson and, and before him Theresa May I've been trying to say that about the present party, but it isn't just a matter of the leadership. I can imagine Boris Johnson being the leader of a much more liberal Conservative Party. The whole party is changing. The Parliamentary Party is changing. The membership are changing. And the difficult decision for me 
is that one of the reasons it's changing is that the hardliners, the right and the crazy Brexiteers, are the ones who stay, and the centrists and the liberals like me feel seasick, and we leave. So by the very act of leaving, you're actually exacerbating the trend within the party which caused you to leave in the first place. So it, it was a difficult decision, and I, I'm still not quite sure I did the right thing, but I'm sticking to it. Tanya, you've been going through a similar conflict, but with regards to Labour. Can you tell us about your decision this election? Well, I haven't considered voting Labour since Corbyn became leader. I adored Gordon Brown um, and cried when uh, when he lost. And also the same with Miliband, though my tears were slightly less um, anguished then. But as soon as Jeremy Corbyn became leader and people began to realise, Jewish people began to realise that... I will call him an anti-Semite because I think he treats Jews differently. I think he treats us differently to to other ethnic minorities. And since he became leader and people who think like him flowed back into Labour, and there has been scandal after scandal after scandal. I mean, too many to talk about, really, but I suppose the one that stood out for me was, was Ken Livingstone when, when he uh, said that Adolf Hitler was, was a Zionist um, and supported Zionism because he had wanted to get the Jews out of Germany before, before they were murdered, when he couldn't get them out of Germany. And when Ken Livingstone said that, what should have happened was that um, he should have been expelled from the party and Corbyn should have said uh, we're expelling him from the party because we won't tolerate this but instead we've just seen uh, you know equivocation and and, and constant uh, constant in, in insulting um, and, and contemptuous half measures and less than half measures and I have many friends who who who, who want to support the Corbyn project, and and, and there are many. Th- I mean, if I read the manifesto, the Corbyn manifesto, there are many things in in it I, I I would like to see happen, and I am absolutely not a conservative. I've never voted conservative in my life, but I just have found, and it's it's been a very painful process that um, that, that as a Jewish person, I cannot I cannot sanction this. I I cannot support it. Uh, how do, how do you resolve? The conflict that I, I struggle to resolve, but between the the case for staying within within an organisation that contains many many good people, and and fighting for what you believe in, and leaving the organisation, and by definition, therefore, impoverishing it, depriving it of voices like yours. Well, lots of Jewish people take that attitude, and and in 2017, I, I believe about a, a quarter of Jewish people were considering voting. Uh, voting for Labour and that's gone down to 7%. And I mean, there were opportunities and, and we were hopeful. I was hopeful. Leftists like, like, to, like to tell Jewish people like me that, that we love the anti-Semitism crisis. It allows us to derail their project and, and it supports the Conservative Party that they all assume we support. But this, this brings us nothing but grief and, and nothing but fear. And I think once, once we realised that they weren't actually going to do anything... There seemed no point in staying. I mean, I'll give you one example. Last year in 2018, there was a rally in Parliament Square, the Enough's Enough rally, in which the mainstream Jewish community called on Jeremy Corbyn to deal with this. He made a few noises about meetings. And then a few days later, he went to the Passover Seder with an organisation called Judas, radical diasporists. They, they loathe the state of Israel, to which many Jews in this country, I would say, about 75% say it informs who they vote for, very attached to Israel. And at a Seder before, Judas have recited a prayer that goes, please God, please smash the state of Israel, please smash it in the abundance of your love. 
And these were the people whom Jeremy Corbyn chose to go to a Passover Seder with, you know, merely a few days after the Jewish community had come out to Parliament Square to say, please, please listen to us, work with us. I believe that he could have converted reasonable Jewish people. He could have reassured them, and I accept there are, there are some Jewish people who are unreasonable and, and, and would, never have, ne- would never have supported the Labour project. I mean, uh, Jewish people have been, have been leaving Labour since, uh, since Ed Miliband's time. But I really believe that they, they left us. We didn't leave them. But he's just the leader, and I'm playing devil's advocate here because I'm having the same argument made to me. He's just the leader. He won't be the leader forever. And meanwhile, all through the Labour Party, right up to the very top, uh, uh, are many good people who are not only not anti-Semitic, they're anti-anti-Semitic and quite quite determinedly so. Uh, And isn't there a case for for staying on and and trying to remove him uh, as leader and getting the party back onto the right track? Well, you probably know more about this than than I do as a political specialist, but it's my understanding that the Labour leadership and and the party is is so stuffed full with with Corbyn acolytes that there there will be no one else. I could not vote Conservative, and in in fact I think that a Conservative government will be a disaster for for all ethnic minorities in this country. I think there's a real problem with Islamophobia in this country. There's a real problem with Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, and I think that the more society becomes unequal, as I believe it will under continual Conservative governments, the worse it will become for all ethnic minorities. And I do wonder if I'm being self-indulgent, but, you know, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust historian and I, ha- and I had to make my choice. I have to respect my ancestors. And I also don't believe they're doing anything about it. I mean, I could give you some examples of some of the people who are standing. Um, in Coventry South, um, we have a woman who once described a Jewish student as a YT, a whitey. So she doesn't believe that Jews are minorities. I mean, that is racism. The candidate for Uxbridge and South Ryslip, he thinks boycott, divestments and sanction should be used alongside violent resistance. He did apologise for that. And they had to lose their candidate in South West Norfolk just a few days ago uh, for calling the former chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs a notorious hate-filled racist. I mean, they're not dealing with this problem. And you think maybe... I should stay and fight, my Jewish acquaintances could stay and fight. We're not being met halfway. We're not being met anywhere along the way. And if Jewish people have learned anything from our history, it never stops, you know, at the rhetoric. The rhetoric is only the beginning. And and leftists will say, you know, it's all on the far right, it's not on the left. Who do you think the far right are getting their lines from? You know, I, I mean, I, I, I think that we're going to see many, many Jews. If Corbyn wins, we're going to see many Jews making Aliyah to Israel. And I think that that will be a tragedy. And maybe people should stay and fight, but I don't. I don't think they will. Matthew, what about the Lib Dems? You've you've advocated voting for them. I mean, do they offer refuge for the politically homeless right now? Well, I do feel like a, a, a kind of Tory orphan of conflict, having to take refuge in voting for the Lib Dems and finding them kindly and and right on a lot of things, but absolutely not my not my family. They're still not my family. I am a conservative. Uh, and I don't see why conservatives like me and, and Philip Hammond and, and David Gork and Rory Stewart, I don't see why we should be forced to choose between a conservative party with whom we increasingly cannot sympathise and another party, the Liberal Democrats, who have lots of good ideas but who are, belong to a different political family, a different political philosophy to ours. Conservatives believe in small government 
Conservatives don't believe in state spending as the answer to everything or even to most things. Conservatives believe in individual liberty. The Liberal Democrat mindset is much more collectivist, is much more what can society do about this, what can the government do about this, the sort of something-must-be-done mentality. Uh, it, it's very well-meaning. Uh, they're very good people, but it, it's not what I think. I, I, I have a, a little bit of uh, sympathy for the people-must-sink-or-swim view that I think almost every Conservative Party has. I'm not saying that everybody should sink, and I'm not saying there shouldn't be safety nets, but we, we do have a feeling, I think, as Conservatives, that, well, it's called moral hazard, that people need to be visited with the consequences of their own decisions rather than sometimes protected by the state from the consequences of, of their own decisions. I can hear as I speak that I am not sounding like a Liberal Democrat. I know I'm not. And <laughs> I shall vote for them, mostly because of Brexit, but also because of the general rightward movement of the Conservative Party. But I shall not be joining them. And if and when Brexit is finished, can you see yourself returning to the Tories? If the Conservative Party were to regain its senses, I would start voting for them again. But I'm 70 now. I've been with the Tories for 50 years. I've left. I think one one departure is enough. I wouldn't be rejoining any party at all, including the Conservatives. But I'd like to be able to approve of them from the outside. And Tanya, how about yourself? Can you see yourself voting for the Lib Dems? I live in St Ives, which is a Conservative, Liberal Democrat marginal. And my, my instinct, since I can't vote Labour, is to vote for the Liberal Democrats. But, but that is potentially a vote for Jeremy Corbyn if the Conservatives don't, don't win a majority. So I just, I do not know what I'm going to do at this point. So I don't mean to make it sound so important. It's just one person's political journey. I, I would like to say one thing, which is I know that there are very good people in Labour, but they haven't solved this crisis. And I don't think that the onus should be on Jewish people to say to solve it for them. And maybe it is selfish not to stay and fight. And I think if I thought there was any point, I probably mm. would. But I think now... People like myself are more focused on warning people on, on, on the dangers of a Corbyn government. I'm not tempted by, by the argument that a vote for the Lib Dems is a vote for Jeremy Corbyn. You're going to hear that from the Tories, from Boris Johnson, all through the campaign. The fact is that a vote for the Lib Dems is probably a vote for a coalition of some kind. It wouldn't necessarily be a formal coalition, but it would be a government perhaps led by Jeremy Corbyn, with a very strong Liberal Democrat party stopping him doing all the stupid things that a, a Labour government would want to do. It's not ideal, uh, but if it gets us out of this Brexit mess and, and gives the people a second vote on, on that terrible decision, then I, I, I would be prepared to rub along with that for a little while. We are not going to get a majority Labour government, and it's only a majority Labour government that could do any of the things that Jeremy Corbyn really wants to do. So so you think that if I could um, allow myself to think rationally about it on an election day is probably the time to do it. You think it would be wisest for me to vote for the Liberal Democrats and assume that they will hold back, uh, should they join a coalition with the, the Labour Party, to hold back the worst of, of Corbyn's instincts, essentially to hold my nose 
Yes, yes. And hold my breath. That's what I'm going to do. I did once try to vote Liberal Democrat in a polling booth because it was the only rational thing to do to keep the Labour candidate out. And honestly, my pencil point moved to put the X in the Liberal Democrat box and it was as if a divine hand grabbed my wrist and moved it to the Conservative Party candidate (laughs) who obviously didn't have a hope and it was a wasted vote. Uh, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Thank you, Tanya and Matthew. This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number, the brand new podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. And finally, it's the 200th anniversary of George Eliot's birth this month. In a new biography of the author, Cathy O'Shaughnessy writes about her unconventional life and work, from openly living with a man married to another woman, to her radical and sometimes dark fictional heroines. Cathy joins me now. Cathy, you write in your piece that it's pretty easy to forget how radical George Eliot really was. Can you start by telling us about her radicalism? Well, I suppose the most famous way in which she was radical was the fact that she fell in love with George Henry Lewis, who was already married and separated from his wife. In fact, his wife had been having an affair with his best friend and children by that best friend. And George Eliot fell in love with him and the done Victorian thing was to have an affair but have an affair discreetly but she wanted to be open and already you can see there her principles are kind of pushing her out of ideas into action. She wanted to be open and live with him and they were both atheists and she did so and that was perhaps the most radical act of her life and then I think her fiction is also radical in various ways. And how did people respond to her choosing to live that way? She was very ostracised. Women wouldn't visit her. Her family cut her off for 25 years and she really was a very notorious scandalous figure which has kind of disappeared perhaps just because her image now as this morally earnest figure from the Victorian times is still so with us. I mean, why do you think people do think she's so morally earnest? I don't. I think she is moral, but I think she has a great deal of humour. And I think, actually, above all, she has tolerance. And if she has a message, it's let's understand each other and give sympathy rather than criticism and denunciation. And you said earlier that her writing was radical. What, What was so radical about it at the time? Well, she did put women centre stage. Also in her first book, Scenes from Clerical Life and Adam Bede, she addresses subjects like an alcoholic wife-beating husband and infanticide and illegitimate pregnancy. So, yeah, this is the thing. She didn't like the way the working classes were often idealised in representations and she wanted to make representations of them also with humanity but also real. So in that way, I think it was quite a radical step for fiction. And also with her psychological understanding being brought to bear in that context also. And then aside from that, she put women into centre stage and mostly thwarted by their like their circumstances. So you have Maggie in Mill and the Floss, who's clever and talented and dreaming and wants to do things, and she's generally thwarted. Then you have Dorothea dreaming of wanting to do something with her life beyond marriage and children. And then you have Gwendolyn, who's an extraordinary creation altogether, whose whole personality, this narcissistic egotist, seems formed by the marriage market for young women, where they're supposed to 
be dependent on men's admiration for their happiness, which has got to be a precarious source. And how how was her writing received at the time? Well, that's why she's such a great story, because when she was ostracised and living in this very quiet way with Lewis, that's when also she starts to write. And in the course of writing scenes from clerical life, she took on the pseudonym George Eliot. Her real name was Marion Evans. And then when they moved to Wandsworth, she wrote Adam Bede, and that came out uh, 1859. And it really took London by storm, and very soon its fame had spread across Europe, even to Algiers and all sorts of places. And everyone was talking about Adam Bede and this amazing novelist, George Eliot, but no one knew who George Eliot was. So, yeah, it went down incredibly well. And then she was outed. And then came Romola, Felix Holt, and Middlemarch, obviously, was an absolute triumph. And and she was acknowledged to be England's greatest novelist when Thackeray and Dickens had died. And do people think that her name choice was a strange one, or was it sort of accepted at the time? I think it was accepted at the time, but it is one of the strange things that the name George Eliot is still her name now as used on books. So, for instance, Charlotte Bronte is Charlotte Bronte, Ditto, Emily Bronte and Anne Bronte. Her name has never got out there from under the pseudonym, but I think that's because although she became very lauded by everyone, as this super famous celebrity, which she really was, she nevertheless, behind all this, was this irregular situation. She was not married to Lewis. And so had she used that name, Mrs Lewis, or Marion Evans, it would have drawn attention to this situation, about which I believe she remained probably secretly sensitive. And casting things forward slightly, how relevant is George Eliot today? I think the whole philosophy underpinning her fiction was to expand our sympathies, that art should expand our sympathies, and that through the power of story and the imaginative identification that comes with fiction, you can actually enter into other people's experiences. And so that enables us to get under someone else's skin. And of course, in our very divided political times, you could argue that that's never been more relevant. And just finally, for people who perhaps haven't read any George Eliot, where would you advise starting? I love Mill on the Floss, which is a very autobiographical novel, probably, well, certainly the most autobiographical. But I think Middlemarch is probably just the most expansive and enjoyable. Thank you, Cathy. And Cathy's new book, In Love with George Eliot, is out now. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening to the edition. Do pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces we've talked about, as well as Anthony Horowitz's diary, Ursula Buchan's roundup of the best gardening books, and more from Lionel Shriver and James Forsyth on the election. And you can get a special discounted subscription to The Spectator at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, and we'll even throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week on the edition. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number, the new podcast from ICAEW. Here presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? 
Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses really have an age problem? Simply search for more than a number in your podcast app to download now.